Hello everybody and welcome to our Building Blocks episode of Unpacking the Case. So in this episode we are going to be looking at a case surrounding break clauses and Marks and & Spencer's and BNP Paribas Security Services Trust Company. Shall I give you the background? Yeah, yeah. let's start with some background. It's, um, it's about break clauses. It's a case from um, December of 2015, a Supreme Court case. Uh, confirming really the Court of Appeal decision. Uh, I remember the High Court decision some years previously being a bit of a shocker, but it's basically about uh, what happens if the break day doesn't correspond with the rent days. And it's not good news for tenants. Shall I tell you the background facts? Please do. Yeah, it was a lease in 2006. Um, it was actually like a lot of these areas, it's sub-underletting. Um, but uh, Marks and Spencers were, I'll simplify it, I'll just call them the tenants. So Marks and Spencers were the tenants. They got actually got four leases of four uh, stories of this big premises in uh, Paddington Basin, the point in Paddington Basin in London. And uh, the case itself only discussed one of these leases in one floor. The rent was uh, £919,800 per annum. But there was also things like car parking licenses of £6,000 per annum, insurance rent, service charge provisions as well to be paid. And the tenants had a break clause, uh, six months notice. They wanted to break the lease. Um, the rent is payable a quarter in advance. Uh, the six month notice terminated the lease on January the 24th, uh, 2012. The last rent day was December the 25th, Christmas Day, uh, 2011. They paid the quarter's rent in advance, which is significant, you know, which is important, but then argued it must be implied that we can get the money back post the break day. You know, they paid the quarter's rent and that quarter's rent ends in sort of March. So it's implied that we can get the money back post the break day. And that's what the case was basically about, discussing whether there was such an implied term. So what happened in the case itself then? Well, yeah, the problem is that uh, there is an Apportionment Act of 1817, which was discussed, which amongst other things says that uh, if you pay the rent uh, in arrears, then the rent should be apportioned, if you like. You know, you'd only pay up to January the 24th and not beyond. There was a case called Ellison Rowbottom, which is always thought of being an established law from 1900 that's basically said that doesn't pay, uh, that doesn't uh, happen when there were rents paid in advance. And uh, they, um, so it wouldn't be applicable here. And so the High Court decided otherwise um, that it would be implied that uh, you didn't pay beyond the break date. But he went to the Court of Appeal and thence to the Supreme Court, uh, who I was not surprised at all. I think one of the great surprises was that it went so far, decided that wasn't the case. They discussed a lot about implied terms, contractual terms generally. But you might remember, it's something again I've discussed in, in podcasts and the likes, there would be, uh, this, the textbooks always tell you there's two methods of implying terms. One is where it's necessary to imply the term to give the uh, business efficacy uh, to the contract, you make it a, to make it a sort of effective business venture. And secondly, uh, where it's obvious it goes without saying. 
I always remember it from my studies many years ago as being called the officious bystander test from a case called Sherlock in Southern Foundries in 1939. If you were to, if, if there was a, an officious bystander who asked, what about this? You would testily suppress them with an oh, but of course. Uh, and uh, that's the way they spoke in the 1930s. Supreme Court said that you can't imply terms if they go against express terms. And it was quite clear these were two businesses. Uh, they knew full well that, uh, you know, Ellison Rowbottom, what happens if the rent is payable in advance? And if they didn't expressly deal with it in the lease itself, there wouldn't be an implied term. So Marks and Spencers. Importantly, they could still break the lease because they paid the quarter in advance. If they hadn't, if they just paid up to the break day on January the 24th, they would have been in serious trouble. They wouldn't have been able to break the lease, but they couldn't get any money back. The same applied to the insurance rent and the car parking licenses. They had actually dealt with what might happen to service charge provisions. And so you know, they, they did apportion the service charge. What's the important message of this case then, Richard? Oh. It's absolutely essential, Lizzie, that you expressly deal with this as modern leases tend to do. That wasn't the case in 2006, you know, it's not a great time ago in the great scheme of things. But it's absolutely essential that the tenants where the break day doesn't correspond with a quarter day, A, let's assume it's a quarterly rent, pays the whole period's rent. Uh, I can think of numerous examples where the tenants didn't do that and uh, couldn't break the lease because there's a condition precedent that the rent has to be paid by the break day. And secondly, you be you include an apportionment provision, mm -hmm. making clear we can get the money back post the break day. The Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors um, Code of Practice and Commercial Lease Code, the new version, from September of 2020 makes it quite clear that that should be the case. It is only a code of practice. Tenants should be entitled to the money back post the break day. Okay, any final words on this one or is that everything? I think that's about it, don't you? Excellent, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our Building Blocks episode of Unpacking the Case. We look forward to seeing you again soon.